Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, everyone. This is the History Hit Warfare podcast, and I'm your host, James Rogers. If it's your first time here, we cover the history of war from Napoleonic battles and Cold War confrontations to the Normandy landings and 9-11. If you like what you hear, then leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. It really makes a difference to us getting out there to everyone who loves history. In this episode, I'm joined by former Secretary of State for International Development, Rory Stewart OBE, to discuss the history of the war in Afghanistan and the current turmoil unfolding there. In 2002, Rory conducted a solo walk across north-central Afghanistan, an experience that he says has never left him, and one which he took into government, into policy, to try and convince policymakers of the cultural diversity in the country. But as the Taliban seizes cities across Afghanistan, and the US readies for its final withdrawal after two decades, we discuss how this rapid rise of the Taliban is going to impact the government, the military, and the people of Afghanistan, as well as the maintenance of any progress that has been made in the country over for those last 20 years. So here is Rory Stewart on the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Hi Rory, thanks so much for coming on the History Hit Warfare podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Where are you talking to us from in the world? So I'm talking to you from Creef in Scotland, just on the edge of the Highlands. Very nice. Is this work or have you finally been able to get a bit of a vacation? This is family holiday. Just got back from Jordan two days ago, where we've been working on a project with Syrian refugees. And normally I'm based at the moment in Connecticut, where I believe you're speaking from yourself. I am, yes. We've swapped places. I'm usually in Europe, based in Denmark, and you're usually over here at Yale. But uh, I'll be heading back on Saturday, actually, all COVID tests willing, of course. Now, it's interesting, of course, you're still working on issues of conflict and refugees, and we're here to talk about Afghanistan, a country that you've long been captivated with. Before you became an MP, you travelled across the nation, and you're the author of four books, one of which, The Places in Between, documented this time you spent there in 2002. So tell us a little about your fascination with Afghanistan. Where did it all start? Well, it began with that walk. So I'd been walking for 18 months across Iran, Pakistan, India and Nepal. And at that stage, I'd been a British diplomat and I'd been serving in Indonesia and Yugoslavia. I'd never been to Afghanistan. And I entered the country not long after 9-11, so end of 2001. 
Taliban government had fallen, but the new Karzai government hadn't really been set up yet. And I started from Herat in Western Afghanistan with a man called Ismail Khan, who's now back in the news again today, but who was a major warlord fighting the Russians and who'd been in prison by the Taliban and escaped. He reappeared in Herat, set up a little independent fiefdom, and he assigned two gunmen to walk with me for the first few days. But what I realized as we went further east is that his writ didn't extend very far. So a few days further east, his gunmen left me because it was getting increasingly dangerous for them. And I continued into central Afghanistan, where I found a patchwork of tiny village communities, each of which was really looking after itself. There was no central government. I was looked after very, very well. People were incredibly generous. And I've always been struck by the kind of dignity and charm of Afghanistan in general. I mean, it's the most wonderful country. What did you learn from your travels in Afghanistan? What did you learn about the people, about the country? Were you able to get beyond those headlines? And you say you were beyond the major cities into the local areas. Was it clear to you that this wasn't a country, a sovereign state as we might recognise it in the West, but more of a fragmented place that was very much about smaller tribal areas that were going to be difficult to overcome and to turn into, I think the word going around at the time was turning Afghanistan into Belgium within three months, which later became trying to turn it into Bangladesh within 30 years. So you're right. It was an amazing contrast. I mean, I was walking through a land that felt not even as though it was divided into sort of regional groups, but almost as though it was divided into 20,000 villages. So in the valleys approaching Yakolang, where everybody was a Hazara, the individual villages had been at war with each other. And I was, by walking from one village to another, sort of 10 mile walk, I found myself going from areas where the locals themselves were just unable to walk from one community to another. So it was really interesting. Often people wanted to accompany me, but couldn't accompany me because they found themselves facing hostility, guns would be drawn, and whoever was with me would have to back off and return to their village. The contrast between that and what you were hearing in Kabul was extreme. I mean, in Kabul, it was true crazy talk. Everybody was talking about a gender-sensitive, multi-ethnic, centralised state based on democracy, human rights, the rule of law. And they were massively underestimating how conservative these villages were, how anti-foreign they were, how isolated they were, and how very, very difficult it would be to create that kind of centralised state. Afghanistan, I think, is just a wonderful place, but it's a glimpse of a world which doesn't really have strong functioning central states. And I think many of the problems that the United States and Britain and others faced in Afghanistan was to do with their inability to really understand what rural Afghanistan was like. And that became pretty impossible because... It's not just that most of the foreigners from Afghanistan didn't speak a word of an Afghan language. It was also that the security meant that they couldn't spend a single night in an Afghan house. So really, all they learned about the country, if you were an American or British soldier, tended to come through an Afghan interpreter. And that interpreter would often not be from the area they were in. So let's say you were in southern Afghanistan. They were often interpreters brought down from Kabul who had a barely disguised contempt for the people in southern Afghanistan who were from different ethnic groups and who they could barely communicate with themselves. So I guess the equivalent would be if you, James, were suddenly deployed, I don't know, to rural Tennessee and you were sent with some inverted commas translator from Manhattan and you didn't speak a word of the local language and that person had never been to Tennessee in their life, but you were relying on them for almost all your information. 
I wouldn't particularly find that easy, I don't think, Rory. And I know for a fact that a number of my friends and colleagues who serve in Afghanistan didn't find that easy either, despite the fact that as the war went on, we did turn towards drawing on anthropologists and linguists to understand the culture of the country more and more. But perhaps we never got to grips with this patchwork quilt of different ancient cultures of different tribal areas, different customs and different practices. I became fascinated in around 2011 when I was doing my PhD studies with the Pashtun culture and the poetry there as well and just how different it was to other aspects of the culture in Afghanistan. Is this something that we're still unable to learn as we try and develop a peace in Afghanistan? Is this one of the reasons perhaps why at this very moment in time the Taliban are making quite vast sweeping gains in certain areas and not others? Definitely. So, for example, there's been resistance in Herat, there's been resistance in Hazarajat. There will, of course, be very strong resistance in Panjshir. These are all areas which speak Farsi rather than Pushtu, whereas the Taliban tend to dominate in Pushtu-speaking areas, and particularly amongst the southern Pushtun tribal groups. And I was very aware of the fact that although I knew more about some aspects of Afghanistan than others, really what I knew about was central Afghanistan and the Farsi-speaking people of the centre and the north, not the people of the south with whom a lot of the coalition were fighting. So although I visited Kandahar and Helmand, I was in no way an expert on them. And that was an interesting thing. As somebody who was trying to argue very strongly against the counterinsurgency strategy, once you start challenging US or British government about what they're doing, you find quite rapidly, particularly in Britain, people start fighting back and saying, what the hell do you know? And one of the things obviously they were able to say is, well, you don't know much about the South, you know about the centre. So this was the great rebuff when you tried to bring this up into policy discussions. You know about this, but you don't know the whole picture. Do you feel like you were able to get your policy points through at all during your time in power? No, I didn't. You know, I started before I was in power and I was, you know, I had extraordinary access. So I returned to Afghanistan in 2005, set up a charity, lived there working in the old city of Kabul for the next three years. And then I became a professor at Harvard and I set up a centre which was largely working on Afghanistan. And, you know, that allowed me to see General McChrystal, General Petraeus regularly. I was part of Holbrook's team that was bringing together briefing for President Obama and Secretary Clinton. But despite that access, despite having an amazing group of scholars working with me at Harvard, I was not able to shift by one inch people's commitment to the search. And my belief is that what we needed was a very long-term light footprint. We needed to keep a few planes and a few troops there for a very long period, almost indefinitely. And initially, ironically, in 2008, my ally in this was President Biden, who seemed to be arguing for light long-term footprint. So I was horrified when he came in this year to discover he's given up on the idea of a light long-term footprint and has gone for total withdrawal. Well, back in 2011, now a decade ago, you gave a TED Talk saying that even then we should have already left the country. And I assume then that you're talking about the fact that we shouldn't have this massive heavy ground footprint, these large amounts, thousands and thousands of infantry personnel on the ground and all the logistic supports that go along with that, of course, as part of massive coalition warfare. Do you think that back then in 2011, it would have been the ripe time for us to have withdrawn to that lighter footprint approach that you're talking about? Did we miss the opportunity back then to leave Afghanistan in a better state? Yeah, I think we actually went wrong in about 2005-06. We had the right posture in Afghanistan in the early years. Luckily, we were distracted by Iraq, which meant that 
we had 100,000 troops in Iraq. We were spending nearly $100 billion a year in Iraq. And we essentially, from 2001 to 2006, kept very few troops in Afghanistan and let the Afghans lead. Things began to go wrong from the end of 2005 onwards when the British started weighing into Helmand, and then they went badly wrong from 2008 when we started to go for this big surge modelled on Iraq. And it was exactly the wrong thing to do because it created the conditions which lead from a massive explosion of troops to total withdrawal. It's as though the world is incapable of finding a moderate light presence. It always wants to either swamp the place in trillion dollar wars, or it wants to have nothing at all to do with it. And in relation to a country like Afghanistan, both approaches are catastrophic. And why are they catastrophic? Is this because due to the fact that we've had so many Western institutions, forces, coalition entities in the country for so long, that Afghanistan hasn't been able to build up its own practices of governance and security to a level where it's able to operate as a self-sustaining nation state. Exactly. So essentially, the best hope for any country in this situation is to allow the country itself to very, very much take the lead and accept that what they're going to do will not remotely resemble what the West expects or wants, and for the West to provide a supportive hand So let's look, for example, at what's happened in Iraq. ISIS took Mosul, 2014, total catastrophe. But the fight back in Iraq did not involve a new surge in the deployment of 100,000 American troops. What it involved was the Iraqi government and even militia groups pushing back with some support from special forces and air power coming from the West. And that, of course, is what's been the key in Afghanistan since combat operations finished in 2016 for the last five years. Those are the right ways to think about approaching these kind of situations, not to do it all yourself, but to allow local institutions to do it and you to provide some vital support. And never be in too much of a hurry. Never convince yourself that just because you're providing some support, that means that what you're doing is futile. So that's Biden's problem. Biden basically thinks that the fact that our leaving has led to a collapse has convinced him that therefore we need to go because whenever we left in 10 or 20 years time, it would lead to a collapse. It's a very odd logic because actually the cost and the risk to the United States over the last five years in Afghanistan has been very, very limited. These haven't been active combat operations. His argument made more sense when we were losing hundreds or thousands of lives a year. But when there were only two US soldiers killed in Afghanistan in a whole year, you're at a situation where you can sustain things in the way that you can in Germany, Japan, South Korea, almost indefinitely. And that's what the US should have been doing. What caused the anarchy? How did medieval migrants shape the language I'm speaking right now? Who won the Hundred Years' War? Could England's lost patron saint be buried under a tennis court in Suffolk? How did England's last medieval king end up under a car park? And were the Dark Ages really all that dark? I'm Dr Kat Jarman. And I'm Matt Lewis. On Gone Medieval, we'll uncover the most exciting and unexpected stories about the Middle Ages, hearing from the best and brightest minds. We will disentangle fact from fiction, bring you the latest discoveries and reveal how the so-called Dark Ages laid the foundations for much of the world we're living in today. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Are we on the route to a bit of a tragedy here, Rory, where 20 years of actually, in some cases, quite substantial gains in Blair's promises of emancipating the women of Afghanistan, of education practices, of educating a whole generation of young people in Afghanistan, has been achieved? Are we at a point now, though, where all of this can come undone, like pulling at a thread? Absolutely. When I first saw Kabul at the end of 2001, it was a ghost town. Because of Taliban rule, there were barely two, three 300,000 people in the whole city. No vehicles on the streets, most of the buildings were abandoned. It's now a bustling city of four or five million people. And the transformation over 20 years and the lives of younger people, if you talk to people in their early 20s, the opportunities they've had, the way they see the world is unrecognisable. It was, of course, a dangerous place over the last five years. It's not somewhere where it was always safe. There were bombs going off in Kabul. There were bombs going off in rural areas. And the Taliban has had a grip on rural areas for some years now. But it was a place where it was still possible in the cities to operate and where Afghans were living fulfilled lives and in many cases quite prosperous lives and where education and health were being delivered. So all of that now is at risk. I mean, you literally have a situation where millions of Afghans are now trying to get out of the country. And it's going to, if we're not lucky, be very reminiscent of what happened after the US withdrawal from Vietnam, where you remember ultimately nearly two and a half million Vietnamese ended up leaving the country. 
So we're maybe on the track to a fall of Saigon sort of situation. And we could even go back further in history to look at some of the quite disturbing parallels. I remember when I did get interested in Afghanistan, I mean, who wasn't interested in Afghanistan from 2001? It dominated every headline around the world. I started to look back into the history books of people like Archibald Forbes on the Afghanistan War of 1839 to 42 and 1878 to 80. And these were all in part due to Russian and British imperial designs for the expansion of their empires. But of course, that earlier war of 39 to 42 resulted in that disorderly retreat from Kabul and the annihilation of the British garrison. It's gone down in history as one of the worst defeats inflicted on the British army. Do you think it's going to get that extreme? Is this history going to repeat itself? Well, what we have in common is that in the first and second Anglo-Afghan wars, and in this war, we have a similar situation, which is foreigners coming to Afghanistan, hoping to remodel it, and eventually concluding that they weren't going to be able to do it. Now, the smart thing about the British in the 19th century, ironically, is that they came to the right conclusion much more quickly. So the horrible retreat from Kabul in 1842 was the end of the British involvement for the next 35 years. And when the British went back again in the Second Anglo-Afghan War, they again concluded pretty quickly that there was no point trying to hang around. And so having won some victories, they then left the country again and were barely present for more than about two and a half years. From then onwards, Afghanistan was largely left alone until, of course, the Soviet Union tried again from 79 to 89. Yes, of course. And again, had the same experience, which is that attempts to try to impose on a very fragmented, conservative, mountainous country, an alien central state, goes horribly badly wrong. And it's not just the foreigners. In fact, an Afghan king called Amanullah Khan had the same experience in the 1920s when he tried to do a radical modernization and was kicked out retreating with his Rolls-Royce across the last pass. Well, we are now approaching two decades of that conflict in Afghanistan. In October, we mark that 20th anniversary of the start of hostilities. And in fact, I think the first drone strikes were fired at Mullah Omar, the leader of the Taliban, in early October, maybe the 4th or the 7th of October in 2001. Now, as we quickly approach that two-decade mark, somewhat unbelievably, do you think we're really seeing an end to the war in Afghanistan? Well, what we're seeing is the end to the US involvement. It seems extremely unlikely now that Biden will ever change his mind. But it's the beginning of a civil war for Afghanistan and Taliban takeover of large chunks of the country. And it's the beginning of what will be years of violence and horror and a huge amount of refugee movement as people try to get out of the country and as the country goes through terrible, terrible difficulties. But I think there's something also which is interesting about this, which is that our culture is often very, very proud of itself. You know, all our advances in technology have convinced us that we're smarter than previous generations, that we know how to do stuff. And we always think that we're improving in the way that we educate ourselves, improving the way that we train our soldiers. Our kit has never been better. There have never been so many people with doctorates who are meant to be experts on nation building or Afghan anthropology. What's so striking about it is that we have made such a complete horlicks of it. You know, we've gone in at a scale that is unimaginable. This is not the first or second Anglo-Afghan wars, which by comparison were quite modest affairs with a few thousand soldiers. This is a war in which we've spent probably $2 trillion. And the technological superiority of the United States over the Taliban is unimaginable. We live in a world where we think 
that obviously the key to military success is technology, where we go around saying to ourselves, well, of course, you know, we need technology. You know, if we were still riding around on horses, we'd be doomed. But we've just been defeated by people who literally ride around on horses. And these extraordinary multi-hundred billion pound budgets have not managed to do anything. When I talk to my friends, my colleagues, in fact, anyone I come across who has served at pretty much any level in Afghanistan, they tell me that they feel betrayed and they feel like they've betrayed the people that they were there to protect and the people in the communities that they got very close with. Is that sense of betrayal a fair emotion to have at this moment in time? Well, I think the sense that we've betrayed and let down the Afghans is fair. I think the idea that the soldiers feel betrayed is more complicated. I think there's a dangerous tendency for the military to somehow imply that none of this is their fault and that they were forced into this by politicians. The brutal truth is that often the generals were the people putting the pressure on the politicians for ever more involvement and ever more resources. There's a very, very uncanny and difficult relationship here where theoretically, constitutionally, the whole thing is being driven by politicians, but generals have much more influence on what's going on than people want to acknowledge. And some of those generals, I'm afraid, got it very badly wrong. And of course, we have to go back to that very unique political moment in 2001 when the Western world felt it was under attack. We didn't know where was next. And there had to be a level of retribution and revenge, as was discussed within the Bush administration at the time. And so, I mean, I think we've moved on a lot in terms of the war on terror from that point. It doesn't hover so potently in our minds. I mean, my students that I teach, I don't know if it's the same for you, Rory, but they weren't born when 9-11 happened. And this is now taught as a history. And I bring in the newspapers from that day. So they have a tangible link to that specific history. But my major worry here, and perhaps it's one you share, is that as we drift further away from that initial invasion, or liberation, depends what you'd like to call it, and we move forward through history, I feel like we're not learning from those mistakes of the past. I spent some time doing field work in the Sahel the summer of 2019, and you described this idea of Kabul as now a city of 5 million people, a somewhat of a metropolis, but is it somewhat of a, a city-state? Because when I was in Sahel, and specifically in Niger, I spent most of my time in Naimei and the surrounding areas, and it appears to become the modus operandi of intervening Western nations to sit within those city capitals and to throw elements of kinetic force outside of the city walls, almost as if under siege, and then to expect to build nations. Is this something that we can see as being sustainable? Is that your idea of what a light footprint is? What should be the future of Western intervention in places like Afghanistan? I think the first thing is that people have tried almost everything in Afghanistan. They've tried, as you say, setting up a few big forts. They've tried setting up incredible numbers of forward operating bases. They've tried doing a strategy called ink spots, where they tried to go into blank spaces on the map and put a company of very demoralized and isolated troops out trying to control the tiny sub-district. We've tried it all. We've tried partnering, we've tried mentoring, we've tried training, we've tried every kind of relationship that you can conceive between international and local partners. The fundamental problem in all these contexts is that the central government 
is generally not accepted by a large chunk of the population. It's seen as corrupt. It's seen as illegitimate. There's very little loyalty to that central government. The police in almost all these contexts, the local police is usually fantastically corrupt, if not off their head on drugs. Apologies for the clock bang in the background there. The army often struggles to retain people and soldiers get killed and they're often paid very late. It's very difficult to get civil servants out into rural areas. Educated people want to stay in the capital. And there is a massive problem with human capital. When we were recruiting into the police in Helmand, I noticed that this is now 2011, eight out of 100 people that we interviewed could read numbers up to five or write their name. So you're looking at a situation there of 92% male illiteracy before you get onto women. So all these problems will be played through in places like Mali too. That means that whatever you're expecting to see will be pretty rough and ready. And you'll be lucky if you don't end up in a situation comparable to Somalia or in another sense, South Sudan or the Central African Republic, or indeed what we're looking at in Yemen at the moment, right? There's a lot of this around the world. What can be done is for... Western powers, if they're lucky enough to find the right partner, and that both means a partner that's powerful enough, but also a partner whose values they're prepared to work with. In other words, not a human rights abusing maniac. They can provide some technological and air support to them, and by doing so, ensure that their opponents remain an insurgent group, remain a guerrilla group in rural areas, prevent them from taking major cities. But what they're never going to be able to do is nation build under fire. That's simply an impossible task. Rory, I have to fully agree with that. And I hope that the civil war comes to an end relatively soon and that the Ghani government is able to hold on, hold on to those key regional capitals which are currently under siege and under fire and that those gains that have been made over the last 20 years from considerable investment from the West in terms of both blood and treasure are able to be maintained and not lost. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much indeed. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.